0: To Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, where if God will bless us for a while here, we can see further the glory and preeminence and superiority of Jesus Christ. Brethren, I am preaching from the book of Hebrews not to fill up 13 Sundays but to quicken your affections for Jesus Christ. It has done that for me in the fourth and now the fifth week so far in this study. Jesus is set so high. The arguments are so powerful and persuasive. He is also set so tenderly as our Redeemer. And I pray that this study will do for you what it's done for me in quickening your understanding comprehension and love for the man Christ Jesus how many times and I have said this before but I'll, I'll never stop saying and I, I fear that God's people confuse Jesus Christ as some nebulous God like being he is plainly revealed in scripture he is a man and to separate Christ from being a man you miss the glory of Christ yet indeed he is God But God is an imperceptible, invisible spirit. Jesus Christ is not so. The Bible says he is the image of the invisible God. Now when you think about an invisible being, it's hard to, in your mind, properly envision what you should be thinking of as you pray to that being. But we pray through Jesus Christ because he is the image ...of that invisible God. Jesus Christ had in his body, according to Colossians 2, 9, the fullness of the Godhead. And it is that man, Christ Jesus, I want you to think about in his humiliation here in this world... ...when he had to become as lowly as one of us. And then in his exaltation at the right hand of the majesty on high. The epistle of Hebrews was written by the Apostle Paul... Two believing Jews who had accepted the gospel, had been baptized by the gospel, had partaken of the benefits of the gospel, and now were considering going back to Judaism because of the tremendous temptations that the Jews faced in believing the gospel. They had to leave the religion of God in order to follow Christ. Fathom that. To follow Christ... They were thrown out of the synagogues and out of the temple where they worshipped God under the Levitical priesthood, under the law of Moses, with God's altar that was still having sacrifices offered upon it every day. And in order to save these souls from leaving the gospel and running back to the law, from leaving the New Testament to go back to the old, from leaving Christ to claim Moses again, Paul writes the book of Hebrews. And if you'll remember that theme, and I'll probably remind you of that theme every Sunday we study the book, you can understand the book of Hebrews. You forget that theme, the book of Hebrews will close itself to you. It is written to believing Jews that they not return to the bondage of the Old Testament form of worship. Jesus Christ brought in the 40-year time of reformation. There is a reformation. We don't look to Martin Luther in 1517. Martin Luther did not do a whole lot for us. (laughs) All he did is make it more confusing for God's people to distinguish between Catholics and true believers. That's what Martin Luther did. We don't look to Martin Luther's Reformation. We look to the Reformation Jesus Christ brought in. Hebrews 9.10 calls it the time of Reformation. And the Apostle Paul labored in that Reformation. And his labor was to show the superiority of Christ. That the reformed faith. You want to be reformed? Some of you attended a reformed Baptist church in this city before this church was started. You want to practice the reformed faith? The book of Hebrews is the reformed faith. It is what God did to Old Testament worship. He just changed it and set up New Testament worship. And that's the reformation we want to be well grounded in. Chapter 1. The first three verses, Paul proves to the Jews, Jesus Christ is superior to the Old Testament prophets. Beginning at verse 4 of chapter 1 and running through the end of chapter 2, Paul proves that Jesus Christ is superior to the, to the angels. Great lengths and pains taken to prove that Jesus is superior to the angels, not only in his deity, but also in his exalted humanity. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And what name? How do you even say it? What name did Jesus obtain that made him greater than the angels? You can say son, and then I can say what name did the son obtain that is greater than the angels? And that's Jesus from Philippians chapter 2. You're caught. Both names, which are basically identical to each other. Jesus is the Son, and the Son is Jesus. Exalt Him higher than the angels. Then we come over to chapter 2, and we see in verse 2, For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, what word is that? The giving of the law. Because who gave the law on Mount Sinai but the angels of God? It was given by the disposition of angels. And the Apostle goes on to say in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? The New Testament didn't come by way of angels. That's a pitiful form of religion. God sent His Son to speak to us in the New Testament. So in chapter 1, we have the prophets put down relative to Christ. In chapters 1 and 2, we have the angels put down relative to Christ. And in chapter 3, we have... Moses put down relative to Jesus Christ. Verse 2 of chapter 3, speaking of Jesus Christ who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. The Jews loved Moses. He was their champion. He delivered them out of the land of bondage and brought them toward Canaan's land. But verse 4, Paul tells us, For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And then he said in verse 3, For this man, that is Jesus Christ, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. He takes every element of the Jewish faith that the Jews would put confidence in, compares Christ to it, and shows that Christ is far superior. Prophets, angels, Moses, and Hebrews chapter 4, Jesus is superior to Joshua. Because Joshua did something Moses could not do. And that is, Joshua brought the Israelites into the land of Canaan, which was a great blessing toward that nation of Israel. But Jesus has done something better than Canaan. And that's what we want to study this morning. Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verse one. Let us, therefore, fear. You may think I make too much of the words therefore and wherefore, but I did not put those words there. Our beloved brother Paul did. And he gave us more therefores in the fourth chapter than you can imagine because the fourth chapter is by far the most logical. It, it, it has the deepest reasoning of any chapter in the book of Hebrews as far as asking you to keep in li- in, in your mind a series of inductive arguments that are raised to prove a conclusion. Let us, therefore, fear. Remember, always ask, what is the therefore therefore, And the therefore occurs in the first verse of Hebrews 4 to remind us of the things we were supposed to have learned in chapter 3. And the things I want to remind you of are this. In chapter 3, from verse 7 through 19, we have set before us the example of Israel at the Jordan River that refused to take the land of Canaan. They sent out 12 spies to view the land of Canaan. When they returned, 10 spies gave an evil report that the people were too strong for the Israelites to overcome, and therefore they shouldn't take God's promised land. Two spies said, let's do it. We can do it easily, and we can do it now. They listened to the 10 spies, and so God was grieved with that generation. Verse 10... And he swore in his wrath, verse 11, that they would not enter into his rest. God said, well, if that's how much faith you have in me, if that's how much you believe in my power, then forget the land of Canaan. And he killed every one of those Israelites in the wilderness over a 40-year period of time. You can see that in verse 9, where the apostle writes, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years. He killed every one of them except two, Joshua and Caleb. Brethren, let me bring out a point I didn't last Sunday, and that's in verse 9. When you're, when it says, the fathers of the Jews tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years. Brethren, your lives every day are proving God one way or another. If you're obeying him, if you're delighting in him, you're proving him whether he'll give you the desires of your heart or not. Didn't he say over there in Malachi chapter 3, Try me now, herewith. Prove me. If you'll give your tithes and offerings, see if I'll not pour out a blessing to you that you cannot receive. Now that's proving God the positive way. You can obtain a blessing by proving God that way. But if you disobey, you're proving God just as surely. You're proving his word. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And there is a reward for unrighteousness, and that's that God will reward you to your face. These people proved him, and they saw his works. He did respond, he did prove himself to them for 40 years. He destroyed them. Another fact that we need to remember from the third chapter is that it was belief. It was belief that was the condition for entering into Canaan. Verse 18. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. It is faith. And remember, faith is strong confidence in God himself and in what he has said that results in activity. That's what belief is. Belief is not simply saying, I believe that's a true fact. That's not enough. Belief means to be living a thing. To be doing it, faith without works is dead. It is no faith. Faith always results in activity. And it's to believe God and act upon that belief in God. And because they didn't do that, they couldn't enter the land of Canaan. We see in verse 7, again I'm dealing with Hebrews 3, in verse 7 through 11, we have quoted there Psalm 95 verses 7 through 11. And the Apostle applies those verses to us. When he says in verse 7, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, that day is the gospel day. Because we come down to verse 13 where the Apostle says, Exhort one another daily while it is called today. Today doesn't mean one particular 24-hour period of time. Today, as it is used here in Hebrews 3 and 4, is a specific period of time made up of many 24-hour periods. Because it says, daily, exhort one another, while all these days are called today. And I remember I showed you that the apostle in 2 Corinthians 6 says, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. That is, the time of the gospel. Today is the gospel period of God's dispensations. That's what that word means. And Paul has already laid that foundation that Psalm 95 applies to us in the New Testament. We need to remember that. Along with that, today, look at all the emphasis on the word while. While, verses 13 and 15. Exhort one another daily while it is called today. Do you know why so much importance on doing it now? While it's called today, because God can swear in his wrath again. Like he swore to those Israelites that they could not enter Canaan. And once he swore, they decided they wanted to enter Canaan, didn't they? They girded on every man his sword, and they went to take the land of Canaan. But they fled before their enemies because God was not with them. Once God swears that today has ended, it is too late. And he swore that in 70 A.D. when he destroyed the Jewish nation and that generation that had not received him. When he brought to pass the greatest tribulation the world has ever seen upon the Jewish nation. And he'll swear again to us by destroying the heavens and the earth and bringing in a new heaven and a new earth. But brethren, he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you can see the fit, while it is called today, we need to be exhorting one another daily. Lest the final day of God's second appearing come upon us unawares, and we be not ready for it. The Jews blew it twice. What will we do with Christ's call of today? Verse 15 also says, When you read your Bibles, brethren focus on every word. Look at verse 15. While it is said, today if you will hear his voice. Voice. While it is said, because it's not always going to be said. The day will run out. The Bible says, he that being often reproved and hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. God is able to inflict uncurable judgment. There is no way for you to get out of it. Once he says you've had enough opportunity, and he takes away the opportunity for you to obey. We need to remember that it is more than just missing God's rest that is the consequence of unbelief. It is also the fact that God will punish us with his works. Notice in verse 9, "...when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years." Israel not only suffered by missing Canaan, Israel suffered by being under the judgment of God for 40 years. And if God swears against you, you'll suffer more than simply missing rest. You will realize God's judgment in your life in whatever form that may take. Verses 12 and 13 warned us, Take heed, brethren. He turns it to the present tense lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. We need to remember that from Hebrews 3. There is a warning to us that we ought not to depart from the living God. That there is is an opportunity, there is a chance for us to do that. And we better be careful that we don't do it. Chapter 3 also tells us the only way we are truly partakers of Christ is if we continue. Perseverance is the name of the game. In God's religion, continuing in the faith. We see it in verse 6, where we read, But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. And then verse 14, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Why, these Jews had accepted the message of Christ with great confidence, great joy, and great hope. But they were starting to waver in their faith. And Paul here is pressing upon them. The only way you are one of Christ is if you continue. If you are not able to take up your cross and follow Christ, you are not worthy to be his disciple. If you cannot deny yourself, if you cannot lose your life for his sake, you cannot be Christ's disciple. It is continuing in the faith that counts. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Let us therefore fear. In light of all that, let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest. Any of you should seem to come short of it. This is beautiful, brethren. From, From this verse, to the ninth verse, is pure beauty. If you want to follow a wise, crafty apostle setting people up and leaving them with the conclusion that the New Testament is where they ought to be setting their affections. Let us therefore fear lest. A promise being left us of entering into his rest. Any of you should seem to come short of it. Chapter 3 did not teach that there is a rest in the New Testament. Chapter 3 simply taught the Israelites, under Moses, missed God's rest through unbelief. That was the the whole lesson from verse 7 down through verse 19. Now the apostle says, let us therefore fear lest. What if... There's been a promise left us of entering into his rest. Any of us come short of it like those Israelites did. See, everybody despises that, that generation under Moses. I mean, how could they do that? God showed all his plagues in Egypt. He led them through the wilderness. He took them right to the brink of, the, of Canaan's fair land. And they refused to take it. All of us despise that generation. They were a stiff-necked, ungodly generation. God despised them too. That's why he killed them over 40 years and dropped their carcasses in the wilderness. And what Paul is arguing here, the way he begins his argument is, you've heard all that explanation in verses 7 through 19 about what God did to a group of people who did not believe him and enter into his offered rest. Now, what if we have a promise of a rest based on belief and we come short of it? We ought to fear, therefore. Let us fear that we don't do the same thing those Israelites did in chapter 3. Now, his line of reasoning is, and he sets them up well, if there's a promise, we ought to fear. And from here through verse 9, he's going to prove, by bringing them to the conclusion, we do have a rest promised to us. And that's beautiful. If you can appreciate reasoning... And persuasion at all. This is beautiful. Ought we not to fear. In case God has left. A promise of arrest for us. What would every Jew say that heard that. Yes. We ought to fear. I don't want to be like that generation in the wilderness. Those stiff necked hard hearted rebellious. Souls back there that God destroyed. I don't want to be like that. Paul says good. Let's go to verse 2. Lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Verse 2. What you've got to follow in verses 1 through 8 is Paul is going to enumerate about 10 different facts that are going to keep heaping the guilt and burden upon New Testament saints. And then he's just going to draw a flat-out conclusion in verse 9. Fact number 1. Shouldn't we fear if there's a promise of rest for us? Indeed. Fact number two. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. The emphasis here is not on the gospel being preached to them. The emphasis is on the gospel being preached to us. Qualification number two. Remember, why did the Israelites not make it to Canaan? Because they did not believe. What didn't they believe? The message that God sent to them through Moses. They did not believe the word of God. That's why they missed Canaan. And so what Paul is saying, well, the second fact that we should take into consideration is the gospel's been preached to us also, as well as unto them. Now there could be a promise left out there, brethren, verse 1. We've had the gospel preached to us, verse 2. And remember, the gospel is nothing more than the good news sent from God. It's glad tidings. You say, I didn't know that anyone preached Jesus Christ to the Israelites. There's more to the gospel than just the person of Jesus Christ. Gospel in its broad sense is glad tidings. You can find that by comparing scripture in Romans 10 and Isaiah 52. It's good news. And did God ever give good news to the nation of Israel? Look at Exodus chapter 3. And verse 8, Exodus chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3 and the 8th verse, this is the Lord speaking to Moses and whenever the Lord spoke to Moses, Moses in turn relayed to the people of Israel and he says in Exodus 3, 8, and I am come down to deliver them, that is the children of Israel, out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land, and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he lists the nations that were presently living there in order to give them some geographical limitations. Notice the gospel preached to Israel. I will deliver you, and I will offer you great blessings. Is That's the same thing preached to us. Jesus Christ has made a great deliverance, and I offer unto you great blessings. And I'm not talking about eternal life in heaven. Jesus Christ secured that. He's already delivered us from hell to heaven. But then he offers us great blessings in the gospel. The gospel was preached to the Jews. The gospel was in the Old Testament. And it was also preached to these Hebrews Paul's writing too. So they meet a second qualification. And that is that they've heard the gospel. Just like... Those Jews in the Old Testament heard the gospel, but he goes on in Hebrews 4, 2 to say, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. How many times did Moses preach, God has brought you to this land that flows with milk and honey. The word was preached. The word from God was preached. But it did them no good because there was no faith in them. They were weak. They wouldn't believe. Even Moses did not believe at one point. And so they missed the land of Canaan because of unbelief. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached didn't profit them because of unbelief. Let us therefore take heed, lest we don't believe the gospel has been preached to us, is his reasoning so far. You've had the gospel preached to you. Are you treating it the way of belief? Or are you treating it the way that the Israelites in the wilderness treated the gospel what is your case paul asks brethren the gospel only benefits those that believe you know some people take comfort in going to church every sunday because they hear the gospel well bless their hearts hearing the gospel is a worthwhile worth less activity if you don't practice the gospel if you don't have faith that results in works the Bible doesn't want us to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. The gospel does no one any good unless you believe it. And when you believe it, truly, you're going to do something about it. That's the only way the gospel does anyone any good. Coming to church and trying to put some salve on your conscience is a worthless activity. Watch Bugs Bunny the the Roadrunner. It'll be more profitable than hearing Jesus Christ preached if you're not going to believe it. Can I prove that point? Because if you haven't heard Jesus Christ preached, then at least you can claim ignorance, and the Bible says you'll be beaten with few stripes. But if you come in here and warm a chair, and hear Jesus Christ preached, and you don't believe it, the Bible says you'll be beaten with many stripes. Bugs Bunny and the Roadrunner are more profitable than the preaching of Jesus Christ, if you're not going to believe it. The word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Because God had given his message to them and they refused, they suffered worse than that generation of Canaanites. Because God dropped their carcasses in the wilderness, because they had not accepted his message. Let's go to verse 3. Now, this requires some thinking, brethren, and a lot of men choke on the third verse of Hebrews 4. For we which have believed. See, verse 2 is dealing with the fact if you don't believe, then God's gospel does you no good. But now he takes up believers. Verse 3, for we which have believed do enter into rest. If a person in the New Testament, Paul argues, believes the gospel they do enter enter into rest. How do you know that, Paul? Because of this passage of Scripture. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. Now that is a summary of Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, that's quoted at length over there in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Paul just scrunches it all down and summarizes it by saying, As I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. See, the word if is the key. This is a conditional offer of rest. And the word if comes from verse 7 of chapter 3. Today, if ye will hear his voice. That's the beginning of the quotation. And you come all the way down to verse 11. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Now, if God said if, that made it conditional. If God swore that some could not get in because of unbelief, do you know what that proves? If you've got a halfway decent mind this morning that's not dead on Kellogg's Frosted Flakes, if God made his rest conditional and he swore in the same quotation that unbelievers could not get in What may we conclude? What does Paul conclude? That believers enter in. That is Hebrews 4, 3. For we which have believed do enter into rest. Prove it, Paul. Okay, he says, I will. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. See, he's just dealt in verse 2 and all of 3 with unbelievers not getting into the rest. Well, now, if God said if, then that must mean believers do get in. Because he didn't swear against believers. He just swore against unbelievers. Lord God, help me. I want you, this is, I love this. He's just making them logically see the flow of his argument all the way down to verse 9. Remember, chapter 3 didn't say a thing about believers in the New Testament having a rest. All he dealt with was that Old rest that the Jews, oh, they just love that promise of Canaan's land, and he dealt with that rest. And now he's bringing all that pressure to bear from chapter three onto these present-day New Testament Hebrews. Okay, the Hebrews, the Hebrews say to themselves, "I see your point. That makes sense logically. I see it. If we believe, obviously, God's not going to swear against us. And if He doesn't swear against us, we meet the condition." We can enter into God's rest. Oh, isn't it wonderful that we have God's Sabbath? They say to themselves. The Jews had two rests. The first rest was instituted in the Garden of Eden when God worked six days and rested the seventh day and made the seventh day holy. And he gave that holy day to the Jews. And that was a blessed privilege of rest. What if you had never heard about taking one day off a week? You say, well, that's so natural, everyone would do it. That is an institution of God. You would not even think in terms of seven days if it were not for God. How do you know that your nation might not have been started or your civilization might have been started by a man who thinks you ought to think in terms of 50 days? And so you get every 50th day off. That was a great privilege the Jews had. Look at Exodus 23. Exodus 23, what did Jesus Christ say about the Sabbath and man in Mark 2, 27? Man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. The Sabbath was an invention of God's intelligence for the benefit of man. Every seventh day, or 14% of our time, ought to be spent doing nothing what a great privilege. Is that a rest? So the word Sabbath means. The seventh day of rest. This was a great rest God gave to the nation of Israel in his Ten Commandments. No wonder when we read the book of Deuteronomy, Moses refers to the law that Israel had. This is our life. This is our wisdom. This is our understanding before the nations. Because God has given us the seventh day off. What wisdom in that. Remember, I've told you before that during World War II in Detroit, Michigan, where I am from, they tried to convert those factories to seven-day shifts where you did not have a day off and production declined and they had to go back to six-day shifts. I love that. I love little facts like that. I don't need little facts like that to prove the Word of God. If God said we ought to take every seventh day off, for some reason, I'm stupid enough to believe it that we ought to take every seventh day off and if you'll work hard six days, you can get more done than if you work on Sunday. And I've always tried to practice that. You know, it works. It works. Are you stupid enough to believe that God is intelligent? And that when he said the seventh day, he meant it. If you'll not do anything on the seventh day, God will bless you the other six. And you'll find rest for yourself. Look at Exodus twenty-three, twelve. Six days thou shalt do thy work and on the seventh day thou shalt rest that thine ox and thine ass may rest and the son of thine handmaid and the stranger may be refreshed. Why did God give the Sabbath? It's not deep. It's very easy, very practical. God gave the rest so that your animals and your servants and your servants' children and any company that you might have had can be refreshed by having a break. Exodus twenty-three, 12. Let's go back to Hebrews 4. You've got to follow the reasoning. You're a Jew. Brethren, remember, the book was written to believing Jews. You're a believing Jew. You thank God for that Sabbath day. Every Sabbath day you make your way to the synagogue and you hear the scriptures read and you do no work. You prepared all your meals the previous day, which would be Friday in our calendar. And now Paul says, we which have believed do enter into rest. And so the Jewish mind jumps to the first rest God gave them. What was that rest? The Sabbath. So what does Paul do immediately? Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, the rest of the Sabbath day was instituted in the foundation of the world, and these words of David came in Psalm 95, 2,500 years later. When God said, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, God rested in the foundation of the world, and now he's still talking about a conditional rest? Can't be the Sabbath day. Paul knows about the Sabbath because he goes in verse 4 to say, For he spake in a certain place, and this is Genesis 2-2, of the seventh day on this wise... And God did rest the seventh day from all his works. Now look at verse five. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. You're a Jew. Brethren, you're a Jew. You've got to place yourself in the position of a believing Jew. You are observing the Sabbath every week. You are observing the Sabbath. Paul comes and says, those that believe enter into rest. God has a conditional rest for us to enter into. And he rules out the Sabbath being the fulfillment of that rest by saying, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his work. There is God's rest of the Sabbath. Yes, there is a rest in the Sabbath. Indeed, it is a time of refreshing. Every seventh day is a rest. And in this place again, Paul wants to go back to Psalm 95 and verse 5 because he's scrapped the idea of the Sabbath day being the rest. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. God is laying out a rest before these Hebrews and it cannot be the Sabbath rest because the Sabbath rest was laid out before them in the foundation of the world. But David wrote about it in Psalm 95, and that's why Paul takes them right back for the third time to Psalm 95. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Okay, the Hebrew mind says, I get your message. Obviously, we've had the, we've had the Sabbath day for thousands of years. And now, God is still offering a conditional rest. Well, what David was writing about must have been Israel go under Moses, coming out of Egypt, having a chance to go into Canaan, and they didn't do it. That's that's going to be the Hebrew's mind as he thinks about God's rest being offered to his people. So Paul takes it up. He says, Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein. He's referring back to the word if. of Verse 5. You say, this is too tedious for me. You need to wean yourself from Kellogg's frosted flakes, Bugs Bunny, and the rest of the things that have warped our minds. We can't think anymore. This is very powerful, easy logic. Verse 5, if they shall enter into my rest. If you want to highlight words, highlight that word, if. Since God said if, we may draw this conclusion in verse 6. Seeing, therefore, it remaineth that some must enter therein. Now, Paul is saying, therefore, some must enter therein. How does Paul know that some must enter into God's rest? Because God said, if, if God ordained a rest and made it conditional upon belief, obviously there are going to be some that believe and go in it or God wouldn't have ordained the rest. He's drawing that argument from the fact that it's a conditional rest and that he only swears in his wrath against those that don't believe. Seeing, therefore, it remaineth that some must enter therein. Now, the next point of his argument, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. That'd be the next group the, the Hebrews would think about. Oh, That must be the rest that God promised Moses in that generation. And Paul says, no, because they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. It can't be that generation. So the Hebrew mind says, well, then it must be the next generation because they did get into that rest. Now, Paul's going to take care of that argument by saying in verse seven, again, he limiteth a certain day. Now, how many times has he quoted Psalm 95? This is getting a little redundant, wouldn't you say? No, it isn't. He's setting these Hebrews up. Again, he limiteth a certain day, not a 24 hour period, but the day of salvation, the gospel day. He limits a specific period of time, and he calls it today in David. That's who wrote Psalm 95. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, today. Now, Paul interjects a few words. After so long a time. After so long after what? So long after the Sabbath of God's creation. So long after Moses' generation. And so long after Joshua's generation. You can apply it to any one of those three. Those are Paul's words. Those are not David's words. Very interesting. Today, after so long a time, he's referring to what David said. David was a long time after Joshua and that second generation. Remember the Hebrew mind, they knew that Joshua brought in the Jews into the land of rest. So Paul is saying wait a minute, David limited a specific period of time. And he talked about it a long time after that generation. As it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Now if David is the man saying today, and he's limiting a period of time, that period of time has to come after David. If David limits a certain period of time, That time has to come after David. Well, is the second generation of Israelites that entered Canaan under the leadership of Joshua the fulfillment of Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11? No way, because David limited a day for that entering into God's rest so long after Joshua. And then in verse 8, Paul's getting plainer. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? For if Jesus had given them rest, who is Jesus here in Hebrews 4-8? Joshua. For if Joshua had given them rest, then would he, that is God, and through David, not have spoken of another day after that? Therefore, Joshua is not the fulfillment of Psalm 95. We've ruled out the Sabbath we've ruled out Moses, we've ruled out Joshua. For if Jesus had given them rest, now someone will say, wait a minute, you're corrupting the word of God, saying that word Jesus there means Joshua. Well, why don't you read the context? It's the only name that will fit and make any sense. We're talking about the rest of Canaan. Look at verse 7. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief, You can see that Paul is talking about those to whom it was preached second. And who was that? The second generation. Under Joshua. You say, well, why didn't God say Joshua? Why did he say Jesus? So that if somebody comes along and doesn't want to study their Bible, they'll end up confused in Hebrews chapter 4. That's why he wrote it that way. And I love a God who didn't leave his pearls open for all the swine of this world to root around in and trample them under feet. He's hid them except to those who want to study God's word. For if Jesus had given them rest, you say, well, how'd they get the word Jesus in there? When you take the Hebrew name Joshua and write it in Greek, it becomes Jesus. When you take the name Elijah and the Hebrew name Elijah and write it in Greek, it becomes Elias. When you take the name Elisha, In Hebrew and write it in Greek, it becomes Eliseus. When you take the name Isaiah in Hebrew and write it in the New Testament, it becomes Esaias. When you take the name Hosea in Hebrew and write it in Greek, it becomes OC. You will never find the word Elisha in the New Testament. You'll never find Elijah. It's changed, it's Elias is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Elijah. You say, Joshua is a shortened version, just like John is a shortened version of Jonathan. And I want to show you the longer version of Joshua. And we read it last Sunday, Numbers 13 and verse 16. These are the names of the men which Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Ashia. See, there's another shortened version... You can call me John, J-O-N. You can call me John, J-O-H-N. You can even call me Johnny, if you're fast. And Moses called Ashiah, the son of Nun, Jehoshua. Notice, here's the full version of his name. Jehoshua. not Joshua is shortened, and obviously Ashia is shortened. Look at the first four letters of Jehoshua. What does it look like? Jehovah, J-E-H-O. That's what it stands for, Jehovah. And the Shua is the Hebrew suffix meaning salvation. Jehovah is salvation in the name Jehoshua, shortened to Joshua. In Greek, Jesus. Therefore the angel said to Joseph, She shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for... Why is his name Jesus? Why is his name Joshua? For he shall save his people from their sins. Jehovah is salvation. Look at Acts chapter 7. Let's prove again that the word Jesus means Joshua. Acts chapter 7. Stephen's preaching away here, reviewing the history of the nation of Israel. He's talking about the tabernacle in verse 44. Acts chapter 7, verse 44. Our fathers, I still hear pages rustling, we need laptop computers so that you can just key in the reference. That'll be nice. It'll happen ten years from now you watch. If you don't have it on your lap, we'll have it on a screen behind me. Acts chapter 7, in verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness... In the wilderness as he had appointed. That's the tabernacle. Speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. Verse 45. Which also our fathers that came after Moses brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David. There's Stephen preaching about the history of Israel. Moses had the tabernacle. After Moses died, Jesus and the rest of the Israelites brought the tabernacle into Canaan and drove out the Gentiles. Now, what Jesus do you want to make that? It's Joshua. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. Just like Elias is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Elijah. Don't be confused in Hebrews. I mean, if you miss this one, you're really screwed up in Hebrews chapter 4 if you think that it's literally talking about Jesus, the Son of God, in Hebrews 4.8. Paul's argument is, Jesus of the Old Testament, Joshua of the Old Testament, did not give the people rest, I'm back to Hebrews 4.8, or David would not have 500 years later still been talking about a rest that was conditionally being offered to the nation of Israel. Hebrews 4, 8. For if Joshua, this is the last straw the Hebrews have. He's taken care of the Sabbath. He's taking care of Moses. He's taken care of Joshua. This is the last one. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Notice he just doesn't come out and say, Joshua didn't give them rest. That isn't as powerful. It's far more powerful to say, brethren, wait a minute. If Joshua had given them rest, why is David still talking about a rest 500 years later? And the, the, you can just imagine a Jew. That's a good point. That's a good point. What is David talking about? The conclusion. Verse 9. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. There is another rest for the people of God. It is not the Sabbath. I'm sorry, Arthur Pink. It is not Moses who missed it, thank you for Hebrews chapter 3, and it is not Joshua. Canaan is not the rest. The rest is something that remains for the people of God based on belief, and therefore we simply recognize what is the context of Hebrews 1, 2, 3, and 4, and what does the rest of the New Testament teach about what happens when a person believes. They enter into the rest of the gospel. It is what Jesus Christ began to speak unto us and what was confirmed by the apostles that followed him, according to Hebrews chapter 2. It is the rest of the gospel under the lordship of Jesus Christ. There remaineth therefore. That therefore in verse 9 is drawing all the facts from verses 1 through 8. It is beautiful to see all the different things pulled in, how Paul just undoes every idea the Jewish mind could apply to God's rest. It's not the Sabbath, and it's not Canaan. There's another rest. Therefore, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. See, God's already been resting. This is a rest for the people of God because it's conditioned upon our belief if we want to enter in to that rest. I'm going to give you one passage if you want to write beside. Well, we're going to get down to it here in verse 10. Let's read verse 10 first. For he, that is any of you Hebrews that are listening, for he that is entered into his rest. Now, whose rest is that? God's rest. It's always called God's rest. Look at chapter 3 and verse 11. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. And God is speaking. It's God's rest. So when we read verse 10, For he that is you, brethren, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, who Paul is still addressing from chapter 3, verse 1. For he that is entered into God's rest, the man that does that, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Hebrews 4.10 is simply a verse based on the definition of rest. Rest means you stop working. When God stopped working on the seventh day, he rested. He didn't rest until he stopped working. When we enter into God's rest, it means we've stopped from working, just like God stopped from working. Okay, what is that rest? Oh, this is beautiful. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into God's rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Look at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Did Paul write the book of Hebrews? Indeed. Did Paul write the book of Romans? Indeed. The first five verses of Romans chapter 10 are addressed concerning Jews. Watch what Paul says. Romans 10, brethren... My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. That is, to God's rest, as you'll see as we keep reading. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law, For righteousness to everyone that believeth. Every Jew that would believe on Jesus Christ could be saved from all the works of keeping Moses' law in order to establish his own righteousness and be found in the righteousness of Christ which is without works. Now that's about as simple as you can make a point. The Jews were extremely zealous of the law of God, even these Hebrews. Remember how Paul's having to deal with them? For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression received a just recompense of reward, he's appealing to the Jews. He knows they love the law of God because the Jews love the law. Look at Romans chapter 2. It says they make their boast in the law. Romans chapter 3, the apostle says, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. What made a Jew so great? They had God's Word. They loved the law of God. But the the point is, for a Christian to go back to Judaism was to go back to works and place themselves back under the bondage, the work of having to establish your own righteousness And Paul's message is, Jesus Christ has already obeyed the law for us. We don't have to go back there looking for righteousness. All we have to do is look for Jesus, who's brought us into a better rest. For he that has entered into God's rest, the rest of Jesus Christ, that's the whole theme of Hebrews, what Jesus Christ has done for us. He that has entered entered into Christ's rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. These Jews are running around trying to establish their own righteousness based on works. When Jesus Christ is preached that he was made lower than the angels, chapter 2, for the suffering of death, and that he was their redeemer and saved them from their sins, Hebrews 1, 3, by himself. Listen to the points that Paul's already made. By himself he purged our sins. He was made lower than the angels for the suffering of death if we enter into Christ's rest, there are no more works. What are you going to do? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's all done. And that was Paul's prayer in Romans chapter 10. They have a zeal of God. Listen, these people are worshiping the true God. They're worshiping the true God with godly zeal. But they haven't been informed of the Reformation. Can you follow that? They haven't been informed of the Reformation yet. They haven't been convinced of the Reformation. Now in Hebrews, it's believers who've already been convinced of the Reformation, but they're starting to waver in their faith, and they're going to go back to Judaism. And so Paul is preaching, there is a rest, Jewish brethren, that God has left to us, just like he left Canaan, to those Israelites in chapter 3. But the only way you can enter it is through belief. The same thing he said in Romans 10:5: "For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. You don't believe it, you'll spend the rest of your life offering daily sacrifices for the remission of sins, which can never take away sin. And you know we're going to get into that theme before we finish this book, that those sacrifices can't take away sin. Oh, there's so many other blessings of the rest in Christ, but I'm going to move on. That's the main one, because the main one is ceasing from your works. Brethren, how many of you found comfort in unconditional salvation through Jesus Christ so that you could cease from your own works? Remember the comfort many of us had when we came from what we commonly call Arminian churches? And then moving into Calvinistic churches, we didn't find a whole lot more comfort And then we find that Christ has done it for us unconditionally. What rest, what rest there is in the gospel under Jesus Christ. Verse 11, there's another, here's another therefore. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Who wants to work the rest of their life? Let us therefore as a result of rest being the cessation of works let's labor to enter in to his rest lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief if you don't believe the gospel if you don't hold true to the gospel and you go back into Old Testament works religion you are just like the Israelites that wouldn't take Canaan but went back into the wilderness the same example of unbelief you are just as bad in fact far worse because this rest is shown to be far superior and far better than the Old Testament rest if you fall after the same example of unbelief remember he's writing to Jews don't go back hold fast unto the end let us labor therefore we had two that joined this church last Sunday which is part of entering into Christ's rest. Because in the gospel church is where the rest is located. It's where we observe the Lord's Supper. And remember that that blood covered the law of God for us. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, but Jesus shed his blood. We don't have to shed the blood of sacrifices. It's in the local church. But to enter into Christ's church, to enter into Christ's kingdom, to enter under Christ's authority, to follow the gospel, takes... Labor. And I want to exhort both of them and all of you that entering Christ's rest takes work. Isn't that amazing? You work to get away from work. Don't we work hard Monday through Saturday in order to get away from work on the seventh day? Sunday? The the Sabbath day does come after the work in God's way of thinking. He worked six days and then rested the seventh. But it takes work. I read in the Gospels where Jesus Christ said that the violent take the kingdom of God by violence. I read in Luke 16, 16, The law and the prophets were until John since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. And you press into it by violence. The Apostle Paul, after establishing churches in a whole string of cities, in Acts fourteen twenty two, went back to all of those cities and exhorted the disciples that through much tribulation we enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus, uh, the Apostle Paul said, "All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution." Not that you might, you shall. Look at Matthew sixteen twenty four. Ma- Matthew chapter sixteen. And verse 24. Why did Paul say, let us therefore labor? Doesn't God just bring us into His rest? No. The everlasting rest? Yes. What amount of laboring can you do to enter into that rest? None. What about the rest in the gospel? Dependent upon your labor. Did God simply plant the Israelites in Canaan? Oh no. They had to gird on their swords and fight for five years. To overthrow those seven Canaanitish nations. Matthew 16, verse 24 Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, if any man is going to enter Christ's rest, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Entering into Christ's rest requires enduring pain and overcoming opposition enduring the pain of the cross, enduring the opposition of denying yourself and your relatives, your friends, your houses and your lands. We've been over that so many times. If a man does not hate father and mother, brother and sister, houses and lands, his own life also, compared to Christ, he cannot enter in to Christ's rest because he cannot be my disciple. It is only the disciples of Christ that come unto Christ that learn of Him and that find rest for their souls. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But the only ones that can come to Christ are those that are willing to forsake all and follow Him. And that all included the Jewish temple. That all included the Levitical priesthood. That all included the synagogues. That all included being considered a heretic by your Jewish brethren. And they had the true worship of God. But it was not the more perfect worship of God of the time of Reformation. And we had, two come out of a church last Sunday very close to what we teach but not perfectly following the New Testament and they are taking the heat for it. But that's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And you're fulfilling Hebrews chapter 4 that we have to labor. It's not easy. And we wouldn't want it easy. How many of us men who have ever thought of joining the special forces or joining the military ever thought of it as being easy? We want it to be as hard as it could be in order to weed out all the wimps and make us as great as we could be. Because the only way you can be made great is to have pressure brought to bear on you to test what you are made of. The Bible says, if thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. Jesus wants to prove that we've all got great strength. He brings adversity our way. We have to labor. He did not drive out those Canaanites in one day. It took them five years of battle after battle after battle. And brethren, they sweat. They didn't ride along in chariots while God drove them all away with hailstones. They had severe battles with those Israelites. And Jonathan and Teresa, you're going to have battles. And we all have our battles. And we all suffer pain. But let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Let's not be like Moses and his generation The entire lesson of Hebrews chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 has nothing to do with eternal life. The labor there is simply to labor into the benefits of the gospel. And that gospel is ceasing from our own works to make peace with God. I've told you about the visits I've made to the Catholic Church downtown Greenville and sat there in that second row. And on the first row was an invalid lady that they had to bring her in. She couldn't even get out of her pew to take Holy Communion. And she sat there during the Mass... Thumbing her rosary. I mean, she's doing double time, brethren. Being at Mass is part of her salvation, but she's also doing her rosary during the service in order to make peace with God. Do you want to know who the Gospel is able to save? A woman like that. Because he that has entered, she, or he that has entered into God's rest, he also hath ceased from his own works. What a message to preach to a Catholic. Jesus has offered us a rest where He did all the works. Now do you love chapter 1 and verse 3 when it says, By Himself purged our sins. And no wonder those two words are missing from all modern Bible translations. Hebrews four twelve through 16. We can cover these quickly. Hebrews four twelve. This is a second argument as to why we ought to follow Christ in this chapter. The first argument is we've got a rest laid out before us just like Israel had a rest and they missed it. Are you going to miss it? That's the first argument, verses 1 through 11. Second argument is verses 12 and 13. We are dealing with the word of God that knows your hearts inside and out and if you have any unbelief in your heart, he is able to discern that and that unbelief is naked before his eyes, and he will swear against you. That's the argument of verses 12 and 13. How many of you have ever heard the verse, Hebrews 4.12, quoted by other ministers? For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. No one's raising their hands, but I believe all of you have. You've all heard that reference quoted. What do they mean when they quote it? They usually do it this way. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Why, if you've ever heard the tapes of R.B. Theme Jr. out of Texas, he starts most of his sermons that way with Hebrews 4.12. If you read Peter Ruckman, who's great on defending the King James Version, he's always talking about how the Word of God, and he means the King James Version, is quick and powerful. This is one of the simplest errors in the Word of God. But you would not believe the lengths they go to to prove that verse 12 all of a sudden interrupts the entire context to bring in a statement about the inspiration, the power, and the characteristics of the written Scriptures. It's absurd. We're dealing with Jesus Christ. One moment we're talking about His humanity. The next moment we're talking about His deity. And what are we talking about in Hebrews 4.12? His deity. John 1.1 In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten Son of God. And what is the theme of Hebrews? But the glory of the only begotten Son of God. And who is that only begotten Son of God? But the Word of God made flesh. They want to make it the Bible. How do we know it's not the Bible? The first reason we know is because of the overall context. He's not talking about the scriptures. When Paul wants to talk about the scriptures, he says scriptures. Go read 2 Timothy chapter 3. He's not writing to preachers on how to preach. He's writing to Jews that Jesus Christ is someone they ought to fear and obey. And when you call on the word of God, it helps. Because it reminds you who you're dealing with. Second, look at the immediate context. Look at verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in its sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the book which we read every day. I mean, this is pitiful, brethren. There are men who've spent 30 years studying their Bibles to come up with the idea that Hebrews 4.12 is talking about the Bible. What does the immediate context tell you? Well, let's just keep reading. Seeing then that we have a great book that is reserved for us in heaven, the Holy Scriptures, let us hold fast our profession. Seeing then, that's another way to say therefore. Seeing then, seeing what? Seeing that the Word of God is quick and powerful. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, is the Word of God of Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is quick. What does the word quick mean? If you don't know, take a pen and stick it under your fingernail. Your fingernail is dead. Under your fingernail, you're going to hit some quick. Why is it called quick? Because it hurts when you stick a pen into it. It's alive. You cut your fingernails, there's no pain. You stick it under your fingernail, it hurts because it's... Quick. I like giving you examples of how these words are used. We don't walk around saying anymore, Oh, it's good to be quick today. We say it's good to be alive today. But this is the way that word was used in 1611 when our Bibles were made. For the word of God is quick. Jesus Christ says of himself in Revelation 118, I am he that liveth and was dead and I am alive forevermore. So the word of God is alive. Yes, indeed he is. The last time these Jews saw Jesus Christ, where was he? Hanging on a cross or being put into a tomb. And Paul is reminding them the word of God is quick. He is alive and he is powerful. Jesus Christ said after his resurrection, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Does that fit Jesus Christ? Indeed. And the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And that is explained further by saying, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is sharper than the sharpest surgeon's scalpel able to get to your very innermost being. He's able to even separate between soul and spirit and to discern the thoughts and intents of your heart. And how many verses do I need to turn you to to prove that Jesus knows the thoughts of men before they ever say them? Look at Revelation 2, 23. Jesus Christ, let's get it in the red writing for those of you with red letter editions. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 23, Jesus Christ is speaking to His churches. And this is a threat that He makes against the church at Thyatira. Revelation 2, 23, I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am He which searcheth the reins and hearts and I will give unto every one of you according to your works you don't have to make it visible you don't have to come out and say I don't believe the gospel he sees into your innermost hearts and he will judge you based on what he sees there he's able to cut right down between soul and spirit and to find out exactly what you're thinking in your hearts every thought and every intent the re- what is the reason you are here this morning warming that chair you're sitting upon Is it to worship Jesus Christ? Is it because you love Christ? Is it because you want to hear more of Christ? Is it because you want to follow Christ more perfectly? He knows the intents in your heart because He is the Word of God. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight. There is no being, man or beast that is not visible in the sight of God. The Bible tells us That sparrows do not fall to the ground without God knowing of that fact. And he goes on to say that every hair of your head is numbered. God is intimately aware of you and what you are doing and what you are thinking. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. We are talking about a man. We are talking about Jesus Christ. A masculine, personal pronoun. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. With whom, with him, with whom we have to do. It's not an it, brethren. It's him. And who is the him of Hebrews? The Son. Jesus. The Word of God made flesh. Brethren, let me give you their weightiest argument as to why Hebrews 4.12 cannot be referring to the Son of God. Are you ready? I love doing this sometimes for you. To realize how much you've been blessed with seeing the truth. This is their weightiest argument. Hebrews 4.12 cannot be referring to Jesus the Son of God because Paul wrote Hebrews 4.12 and nowhere does Paul ever call Jesus the Word of God. Now brethren... Have any of you ever heard of circular reasoning? Listen, I've read pages trying to see why they want to make this the Scriptures. Their weightiest argument is Paul wrote Hebrews 4.12. Paul does not call Jesus the Word of God. John does that. Therefore, the Word of God in Hebrews 4.12 cannot be referring to Jesus the Son. Well, how do they know that Hebrews 4.12 wasn't the place where Paul was writing about Jesus as the Word of God? I mean, isn't that pitiful reasoning? But you've got to go to seminary to get that sharp. A man in the street could not come up with that logic. A man in the street would read verse 13 and say, well, let's find out what he's talking about. And he'd see him talking about Jesus, the Son of God, and he'd say, well, that's simple. Then he go over to John 1.1 1, 1 and say, hey, the Bible calls him the Word of God. Then he go to Revelation 1.18 and say, he is alive. He is powerful. He's got all power because all principalities and powers have been put under his feet. It fits perfectly, beautifully. And it carries tremendous weight. We are dealing with the Word of God. Are you going to hesitate at Jordan to enter into God's rest? Or are you going to remember who we're dealing with? But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The Bible says in Proverbs fifteen three, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. He sees it all. That ought to motivate you to be a believer. First argument, there's a rest. If you don't believe, you're going to miss the rest. Second argument, we're dealing with God the Word. If you don't believe, you're messing with the infinite creator of heaven and earth before whom all things are naked and bare are you going to believe third argument verses 14 through 16 seeing then as a result of this great word of God that is Jesus seeing then that we have a great not just a high priest like Aaron but a great high priest that is passed into the heavens I mean when you can say that your priest is God You've got a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Remember, he's writing to Jews. Don't go back to Judaism. You've got a great priest. He's far greater than anyone serving in that temple right now. He is the Word of God who's passed into the heavens. Let us hold fast our profession. Reason one, don't miss the rest. Reason two, because we have a great high priest, you don't want to offend a priest whose name happens to be the Word of God. Whose name also happens to be the Son. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For God has spoken unto us by His Son. But now it gets tender in the last two verses. Yes, He's a great high priest but he's a compassionate high priest also. Verse 15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Do you know why Paul says that? If you were a Hebrew, you would already know that the best priests, the best priests are men. Look at at chapter 5, the first two verses. Every high priest Taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Why do priests come from men, verse 2, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. You always want a mediator. You always want a priest that can relate to you so that when you go to the priest and say, I have sinned, priest, Will you offer a sacrifice for me? That priest can say, Son, I know, I know. That's an easy temptation. I've fallen for it myself. God will have mercy on you. I will offer a sacrifice for you. And that's comforting. Now, Jesus Christ never had to say, I fell for it myself. He was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. Take a Jewish mind, though. Paul has just told them their great priest is the word of God. He's deity. The first thing they're going to think is, that doesn't make a good priest. You would not want God to be your priest, brethren. You would not want God to be your priest. Because God is just. What sacrifice can God offer himself? That's where the Bible says he cannot by any means acquit the wicked. He must punish you would not want your priest to be God alone. You would want your priest to be God-man. Beautiful! There is one mediator between God and men, the daysman, who's able to put his hands on both. Can you see the Jewish mind? I mean, when you get a priest that's God and man, he can relate to God because he's God, he can relate to man because he's man. And yet this priest is so great, he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin because His divine nature upheld Him and He could not be tempted to sin like we are tempted. Let me briefly comment on something I didn't say two weeks ago when I was preaching on Hebrews chapter 2 when the Bible says He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. There are two types of temptation in the Bible. James chapter 1 says that God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth He any man. But Genesis 22 says that God tempted Abraham. There are two types of temptation. James chapter 1 goes on to say, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. That is a source of temptation from the inside out. That's why Jesus said all evil things proceed out of the heart of man. That's temptation from the inside out. Jesus Christ never endured any of that because he didn't have lust in his heart. He had a perfectly pure and righteous heart. There were no adulteries to flow out of his heart. But now when we come over to Genesis 22 and God tempted Abraham, God said to Abraham, I want you to take your only begotten son Isaac and offer him as a burnt sacrifice. That's outside Abraham. That is an opportunity to sin. That is the external opportunity for sin. Can God be tempted that way? Can Jesus Christ be tempted that way? Indeed. He was in the wilderness for 40 days with the devil. And what was the devil doing but outwardly tempting him? See the stones? Why don't you turn them bread and satisfy your hunger? Takes them up on the pinnacle of the temple? Why don't you cast yourself off and fulfill Bible prophecy? Shows them all the kingdoms of the world? Wouldn't you like all these? I'll give them to you if you'll worship me. Outward opportunities for sin. But nothing here. But he knows everything that we see and are exposed to and he can have compassion upon us. He is great because He's the Word of God, but He is a tender, most merciful, as Hebrews 2.17 describes Him, high priest, because He has suffered just like you have suffered. You think you've endured pain? You've left friends? Jesus had no friends. When He hung on the cross, there were no disciples left with Him. John showed up for a little while, but when He was tried, there was no one to defend Him. He has endured it all. He knows how to relate to your pain. When you pray to him as high priest, he can relate. You see how that would be comforting to a Jewish mind? Just to have God as a priest isn't enough. Who would want the God of Mount Sinai to be your priest? I want the man that fulfilled everything from Mount Sinai and died and rose again to be my priest. And he's also God. The last, therefore, of chapter 16. Let us, therefore, come boldly. There should be no hesitation coming to Christ. The therefore is concluding three arguments. God offers you a rest from all your works. You can forget earning peace with God. Jesus has done it for you. Our high priest is the word of God that knows every thought of your heart. Therefore, you ought to come to him boldly. He knows what's inside. If you come timidly, he sees that timidness. And as I preached to you last Sunday night, the first characteristic of those that will suffer eternally in hell is that they are fearful. Third, this is a priest that can be touched with every infirmity you have ever had. You say, I've just lost confidence in people. They let me down all the time. You want to talk to someone who's been there before? Jesus Christ was let down over and over again. Especially by His own disciples. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. It's not enough that He's sitting on a throne. It's the fact that it is the throne of grace. And brethren, here is the most subtle hint at something we're going to get into in chapter 9. This is referring to the mercy seat what is the mercy seat but like a saddle that was placed on that ark of the covenant between the two cherubim where God would come down and speak to the high priest once every year in a pillar of cloud Jesus is a great high priest sitting on a throne of grace that mercy seat is now a throne of grace you don't have to enter with fear Once a year, you can go there as often as you want to follow Christ because it's a throne of grace, not law, because he's already satisfied the law. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. First, because he's the word of God, he's able to give mercy. All power is given unto him. And second of all, because he knows our need for mercy, because he was touched with all our infirmities and find grace to help in time of need. Those Jewish brethren are being persecuted, but if they would hold fast their profession, they would realize God's rest of peace from their works under the law. They would realize a great high priest who was not only able, but who was compassionate. Brethren, Jesus Christ is why we've met together this morning. Jesus Christ is a great high priest. Are you going to hold fast the confidence of your hope, firm, Unto the end. If you're not confident, he sees your fear. Are you going to be bold and labor to overcome opposition and pain to follow Christ and enter into his rest? He sees that. He understands that. He expects that. Let us, therefore, fear. Lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. God has given us a rest. Let's not come short of it. Because short is a long way in God's way of reckoning. Short not only missed Canaan, but it brought God's judgment for 40 years. Let us find God's rest.